Sound Design. If you've set your subs up left right, then you have already made a decision that you don't care about coverage. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the show to help you build your career as a sound engineer in the home of the world's first online career coaching program optimized for audio professionals. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by product manager and smart instructor at Rational Acoustics, Chris Tangeris. Chris, thanks for joining us. Absolutely, Nathan. So I definitely want to talk to you about all of the cool things that Smart can do and your experience at NAMM last month. But first of all, what is your most played reference track when listening to sound systems? The music that I listen to on a PA system to reference that PA to what I know a song should sound like and the music that I listen to in my car or when I'm having fun or at a party are not the same types of music. So, Are you afraid we're going to judge you? I'm, I'm not afraid you're going to judge me we're because most judge people are going to know this song, but I have, to, <laughs> I have to make it clear that to me there's, there's a distinction between reference tracks and, and fun tracks. And all right, so this is not a representation of your taste in music. Th- that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So uh, it's Somewhere Somebody by Jennifer Warren. I know he's out there waiting for me. A female vocal and a male vocal and upright bass guitar and some stuff in the top end and it's fairly acoustic and and you know if, if things aren't if things are fighting with each other it's really clear to me and I know exactly what that track should sound like. Now um, again, it's somewhat of a joke because in my smart classes, you know that's the song that I'll put on when we're listening to stuff, and it's it's like I don't like this song, but if something isn't right about the way the song sounds like. I'm going to know so much faster than if I listen to a song that I would like the way it sounds like on an AM radio, because I like that song. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my my thing. Yeah, that's interesting. When I was at the workshop with Merlin, he put on the song that I wasn't familiar with called Hunter, or the artist is called Hunter, and he yep. just kind of played it on loop, yep. and I said, oh, this is a nice song. And he's like, oh, man, doing these workshops and working and using it all the time has killed it for me. Like, I hate it now. Yeah. That's another <laughs> song that I have. I, I If... I believe I'm right in saying that they're the same artist. I could be wrong, but I believe that they're the same artist. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, The Hunter is a common one. I mean, there's a there's a handful of these songs that sort of go around and wind up in the same people's libraries. And uh, and you hear them, like, you know, at that music mess a couple of years ago, this this booth across the way from us played Somewhere Somebody probably, you know, 35 times a day. Oh, my God. And it's, you know, it becomes comical, but, uh, you know, so many people know that song. If it's If it's not right, it's obvious to a lot of people. And the, I think the really important thing that you mentioned there was that kind of remove the emotional connection and then it turns into a tool. Yeah. And I just looked it up. It is Jennifer Warren's W-A-R-N-E-S. And you're absolutely right. It is a tool for, for me and for other people as well. Uh, the artist is Aaron Neville, but the singer is uh, Jennifer Warren's. Okay. The album that that song is on is The Hunter. That's, this, that's the title track from the album. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So, Chris, how did you get your first paying job in audio? When I was in college, uh, and I I went to school for a recording degree um, with a minor in classical guitar. Not really minor, but that was what I had to study to be there. There was an email in the first semester, like September, uh, that went around to all the students in in the recording degree program looking for someone to help doing sound at, uh, at clubs around the area. I was like, yeah, I love I love doing sound, you know, that's what I'm here for. So I, I took a took a gig and showed up, got handed the keys to a van with a uh, system inside of it. You know, it was like, uh, <laughs> it was like two double eight teens, two, two 12 and horn PV gray carpet boxes, uh, a 24 channel Allen Heath console with a bunch of outboard gear and five mixes on Yamaha wedges. And, uh, and yeah, it was pretty much the first gig I did with that company. There was a guy that sent the original email, and he uh, he basically said, "Watch everything I do. Ask questions about anything you don't understand. Next week, I won't be here." 
<laughs> and this is this is my That's first great. this is my first time doing anything like this where you know That's I'm a showing, lot for a first time yeah, yeah and i'm and i was showing up you know 18 years old at that point uh you know into clubs that are 21 plus you know doing cover bands that are a bunch of you know 40 something year old weekend warriors that have been doing it for years and and then i'm supposed to make you know make sound happen when i don't even know you know how to mix anything but uh, you know that that was sort of trial by fire, and I didn't really know what it, what I was doing necessarily. But you know, after after a few months of that, I got introduced to a, a guy that does know what he's doing, and uh, started working with a different company that gave me a, somewhat of a mentor in that company. So first first job, you know, driving Oliver Creation, you know, three hours one way, three hours back, staying up all night to make seventy five dollars to work in some crappy club with a system that I don't know how to use. Um, and <laughs> I'm then, so glad yeah. you said that because the conditions for an outsider sound terrible. Like that sounds terrible, but there's some part of it that you must have loved because you kept coming back and now here you are. Yeah. Uh, no, I absolutely loved it. It was, it was so much fun. And, and I, and I would take friends with me that were also in the program or, or that weren't, but were interested and, and I would make them help me carry the boxes around and, Smart. you know, Throw them, throw them a couple bucks, you know, or, or get the, you know, give them a free drinks or whatever, and, and everyone gets something out of it, and and that was sort of what started the spark, and and you know, realizing quickly that if you're doing stuff in practical sense, you know, not just theoretical in in a college, you know, sort of uh, uh, controlled environment, uh, if you're out there actually putting stuff together, you learn a lot faster. That was my big takeaway over the course of my college career is how much faster I learned things because I was not just doing stuff in college in the classroom I was out there doing shows and as I as college went the shows got bigger and you know my comp- my contacts grew and everything that's so. really interesting that you say that because I get a lot of questions from people about where they should go to school or what sort of education or certifications they should get and I always say you should do both like you should definitely do education, whatever you think is going to be appropriate for whatever the end result is that you want, but you should also be working at the same time because working is really where you're going to find out the things that you need to learn. It's where really you're going to get the best education anyway. Yeah. Uh, one of my professors called, calls it the shadow curriculum. Um, Gabe, Gabe Herman, who is a, is a professor at the Hart School of Music, uh, he was just recently interviewed in the the Connecticut, you know, current whatever the the newspaper is there, and um, and he had said something uh, to the effect of, you know, all the professors notice that the kids will group together, they'll they'll form their own peer groups, and and they'll do work outside of school, and and they call this the shadow curriculum, and and you know wherever you go, you you need that shadow curriculum to really to really blossom anywhere you are, you know, to to give you a reason to be interested and uh, to keep your mind, like you said, thinking on what you don't know to make sure that you pick it up and when you have the opportunity to learn it. And, uh, and then in the shadow curriculum, hone your skill. Talking about honing your skill, Chris, um, looking back at your career so far, what do you think is one of the best decisions you made to get more of the work that you really love? I don't know when I made the decision. Um, Obviously, uh, you know, it was within the last 10 years because I'm, I'm not that old. <laughs> I'll be uh, 30 this year. Whoa. Um, but uh, so uh, it was, it was you know, somewhere in college around that time where, where I told myself I would never take a job that didn't directly involve audio or my field. Before that, you know, if the summer came around, I would take, I would take like a waiter, waiter job or, you know, do some sort of temp position you know, wherever, whatever work I could get. And I just, I just said, no, I just, I just started saying no to that stuff and, and would only look for jobs that were in audio because at that point I'd been working for sound companies in college. And, you know, so right about time I got to my junior year of college after my sophomore year, I had plenty of, of opportunity and work in audio that I didn't need to do, uh, do something that was outside of the industry to make a few bucks. And, um, and I just, I've just been really, like uh flag in the sand about that you know i'm just i'm direct you know in, in in a lot of ways and and uh if i think i can do a job i'm going to make sure that uh, that the person hiring for that job knows that i'm capable and you know that i'm i'm the guy and and whatever so i i just i'm i'm conscious about not straying out of the uh out of the realm of things that are audio 
Chris, I want you to kind of make the case for SMART. You're the project manager at, uh, I'm sorry, product manager at Rational Acoustics. You teach these courses. But I always have new people coming in who see the material and they think, what is this? Why should I care about this? So make the case for SMART. Why should I care about the physics of audio and sound system optimization? I mean, I've got a good ear and I don't really need robots telling me how to do my job. <laughs> Hearing is, is in a lot of ways subjective. Uh, you know, what you say sounds good and what I say sound good. You know, we may agree at certain points. We may disagree at other points. You know, you like some artists that I don't like, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, you know, you may like a speaker cabinet that I don't care for, uh, because you find that it rigs better than, than XYZ brand or something silly like that. Uh, now with sound, when we measure audio, it's an objective thing, you know, so we're objectively measuring the quality of transmission of sound. Hearing can't do that. You know, hearing hearing is just going to hear what sound is. Your hearing also changes day to day. What if you wake up and you've got a cold and your equilibrium is off, your hearing isn't isn't where it normally is, but you still want to get the same exact result that you had the day before on the same system. So how do you objectively measure that system when the only tool that you have is already handicapped? You know, analysis becomes becomes the the natural fit there. Um, there's a lot there's a lot of, of proof in analysis as well. So, you know, this this system sounds great. This is what I want. Well, what do you like about that system? Why does it sound great? Why why? You know, what what is it about this particular gear or setup or response that is that you love? How do you recreate that? that response or that that sound that you love in a completely different environment in five minutes you know and and the only answer is really with objective tools you know because if you if you have a target that you want to reach if you know the destination you're going you know you don't get into a car to go to work and then forget where work is and just drive around aimlessly until you hope that you find yourself there and that's sort of what I think of when I'm when I think of tuning by ear or or you know doing anything by ear. It's like you kind of you kind of have an idea where you want to go, but you're not really sure how you're going to end up getting there. And so you just kind of start doing stuff, hoping that something sticks or something gets you there. Whereas you know, that that could take you know you know who, who knows how how proficient you are. You know I'm sure people get results that way. You know, I just I just don't have the time, and I and I don't like um, I don't like not knowing either. I don't like having um, uh, proof or or data to support my claims. Uh, so, you know, with an analysis, you open up an analyzer, and it doesn't have to be smart. I mean, obviously that's that's where I live, but uh, you know, any analyzer they're just tools. You know, they're all going after the same basic end goal, which is to have good sound. You know, using that analyzer generally takes jobs that would otherwise take you an undefined amount of time into a point that you can knock knock out these tasks relatively quickly and work in a process that gets you consistent results day in and day out and not just, you know, oh, well, that show is really good. I wonder why, you know, or that show really sucked. Why did, why wasn't it as good as the last one or this, you know, this didn't work out. Well, why, why not? Like there's, and today, you know, with the technology we have and the, the level of systems that we have, I mean, loudspeaker technology has just grown exponentially over the past even 10 years. Um, you know, so there's really no excuse to not have quantifiable data and to have, you know, sameness objectively um, as you go day to day. And that's that's where analyzers come in. Of all the things you said, the one that the couple that really stuck out to me are saving time and consistency. Those are important to me. And nobody's really going to offer me more money if I say, now I know how to use smart and I have a smart system and I can do this kind of measurements. Right. But if I can produce a more consistent result and maybe even faster because of these sort of optimized processes that I have through analysis, um, then hopefully that'll get me more work. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's exactly what I found to be true. I mean, once I started getting really slick at system engineering and 
measuring systems and being able to do the same result I would have done, but now I can do it in five minutes. Uh, you know, that's that that's money for people, you know, because then you become an indispensable asset to a production crew because you can get that system, uh, you know, up if, if it takes you an hour to get the system off the truck and in the air, that's one thing. But if it takes you two hours to get the, to get it to sound good, that's 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 not so acceptable to me, you know. So, you know, if 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 you're at a show or you're doing you know regional stuff, and this I say this because this is sort of my background. I haven't I haven't done a major concert touring uh, yet, um, just regional produ- regional stuff, and, and then teaching as well. But if you get that system up in an hour and then tuned and ready to be used in 15 minutes, you're a hero, you know, because there's someone that's you know, waiting to do a sound check and they're, you know, they just flew in from Nashville or whatever and they're trying to get to the hotel and get showered up and come back. You know, they don't want to be hanging out all day waiting for some some system tech to to tune this instrument, you know, so. Chris, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are kind of new to using Smart? Uh, showing up at uh, work and assuming that they know what they're doing. Okay. <laughs> so they buy uh, the software and they feel like that immediately makes them an expert or something yeah so you know it's it's you have to practice and that's this is what i say in the classes too it's like don't leave this class and then open up the analyzer at your next show and assume that you're going to be able to do everything we did in class it's just not going to happen that way and you have to you have to in a more controlled environment practice and get used to looking at the data. For an an expert, you know, a, an analysis expert, a, an optimization wizard, you know, for a lot of us, we can look at, you know, we we know that we're getting good data, and we we know how to recognize if it's good data or not. That's that's one key, and that that comes with practice. You know, you're just looking at data over and over again, and and getting used to what good data is and what it is not, and then knowing where to go from there. Uh, and that's 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 practice. It's just straight up practice. You, you know, we can teach how to use the analyzer and we can teach to a, an extent how to interpret data, but you know, you really need the context, that lexicon of prior knowledge, prior use of, you know, your own discovery to, to make that valuable, you know, to be able to look at a single measurement position and say, Oh, you know, uh, my microphone's about four feet off the ground, so I'm obviously going to have some issues in the low mids because of the comb filtering that the microphone height's going to cause. You know, am I going to am I going to be able to look through that because you're you know what a 250 hertz comb filter looks like, and you can see the data through that, or are you going to you know create an average of positions and get a measurement that looks more like more like the response of a loudspeaker with the the ground reflections and various things more randomized out of the response. How long does that take you to do? Uh, I'm sort of ranting here, but what I'm trying to get to is, is saying that the, th- the biggest mistake I guess I see people making is, is being intimidated by the analyzer, not being comfortable with the analyzer, uh, you know, thinking that it's going to take them too long to set up or something like that. Um, you know, the difference... The difference between a professional and the amateur is how long it takes you to get actionable data. Period. So Chris, tell me how to practice. How If I've just got smart and I want to practice outside of a show, what are some of the first steps I can do? Or maybe what's something I can do on a regular basis to really improve my skills and my speed. If you don't have a external system processor or a way to get re- EQ level delay polarity in an output of a system, that's that's one thing that you're going to need. So, uh, you know, I carry I carry around a system processor when I'm doing freelance gigs, you know, we have system processors in our smart class, it's part of the part of the deal, and that's that's your tool to make action on a system. You know, that's that's where the tool lives. Uh, that's where the adjustments are made. That's also sort of a BS statement because there's so many decisions that are made before you get to the optimization that determine how well the optimi- optimization goes. Okay. You know, like like is the install good? You know, is the are the speakers aimed where they need to be and placed correctly? Is the wiring correct? You know, all that sort of stuff. That system verification. 
you know, if that stuff's not done, then it makes the optimization part difficult. But this isn't really answering your question, which is how do I practice? And my answer to that would be, well, just do you have a couple speakers? Do you have any equipment at all that you can get access to? Yes. And if okay. you do... Let's say I have, I have a couple of speakers at home that I can access, or I can go to the warehouse and use their system processor and a couple right. of speakers. Right. Set that stuff up. Set, set, up uh, set up two full range speakers next to each other and splay them apart and find where they are equal level in, in that seaming and try to time their seam or try to uh, you know, get, get two different loudspeakers of different manufacturers, different types, and, and make them match. You know, try to match their response and then try to add them together and see what you have to do in terms of, uh, in terms of time domain to make them work reasonably well together. You know, if you can, if you can take two different speakers, what, what my um, mix, mixer friend Eric Rogers, he calls it PA salad. How many people work for shops that are all Meyer sound houses or all DMB houses or all L acoustics houses? I mean, that's like the one percenters, <laughs> you know? Um, for a lot of the people that are in my classes, they're, you know, they're regional guys, they're freelance guys, you know, they, they may not own any gear or they may be using someone else's gear all the time. So they're using different stuff every day. Yeah. And you may get into a situation where you've, you know, the sound company's got a brand new, uh, you know, line array system because they, they just, you know, they upgraded for the year, but they haven't upgraded anything else in their inventory. So, so now you, your front fills are from the, you know, the system by a different manufacturer that they were using 10 years ago, and that's what they use. And so, you know, the front fills and the main system have, have no business playing together okay. out of the box, but it's your job to make them work together. And so how do you do that? And that's, that's, that's where practice comes into play, because if you, if you know exactly what to look for and how to make that happen uh, conceptually and then practically with through the use of practice then when you actually get your hands on a system where you have to do that it's just a matter of decision making process to get to that end goal and you already know where you're going so again this comes back to the know your destination and then you know enter your directions and and just follow the steps chris one of the most common questions i get is how to save time in sound system tuning now you already mentioned that practicing and be able to being able to set up quickly will save me a lot of time. And we talked about, you know, kind of knowing our destination, uh, so we're not kind of wasting a lot of time. Aside from that, are there any other kind of time-saving techniques or shortcuts that you can share with us or that you use when you go out and do work? Depending on the scale of the job determines how much homework I may or may not do. So if it's a system commissioning for like a 36 loudspeaker club, you know, some sort of hall or whatever, Part of the homework before you even show up is is looking at the CAD drawings, looking at the the design of that system, and determining where you're starting and where you're ending and what your target is. Uh, so you know, I I actually have a, a worksheet in Excel uh, that starts off with you know the the left side are all the systems, and so whenever I get something like that, I start off like what's the main system, and then that's where you start and then you work down out throughout the venue to all the secondary systems. And then to the right, I have, you know, your response adjustments, so high pass filters, low pass filters and then any equalization and then level adjustments and then polarity and then time. And so it's basically a checklist, you know, your response level polarity time checklist for each system as you work through. And so there's no absolutely no room for what's next. You know what I mean? So you have you know exactly where you're going and what what part of the task you're you're working on, and so that way, as you work through systems, you're you're going through it in order, and there's a clear pathway to when you're done. And if it's not such a complex system, then it's just you know start off. If it's a concert, left right system, do left and right sound the same. You know, if left and right sound the same, if you can go left, right, and they're the same, then you've already saved half your time because anything you do to one side, you can just copy to the other. Nice. So, so far, it sounds like the more pre-planning I can do so that I can, when I get into the room, I can remove all of the time that I would normally spend 
navigating, thinking about what to do next, that'll be a big time yeah. saving because then yeah, you can I, just I go can't stress task, enough, action, yeah. action, 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 and not yep. be thinking about what, okay, what do I do next? Oh, wait, where, what did I already do? Wait, where am I? Yep. Yeah, that's, then that's exactly it. And then that's, that's sort of the process that, that I teach in smart classes and Jamie does as well. First thing you do is, does it work? System verification. Does it work? And then work on your main systems. And it's worth spending a little bit of extra time on the main systems because once you get the main system knocked in, that dictates everything else because everything else is set relative to the main. And I'm talking specifically more about, about you know, concert sound systems. Um, but, you know, even if you're in a club or something where there isn't necessarily a artist or something that you need to direct the attention to. And, you know, I'm talking about delay systems versus relay systems, that sort of thing. And this goes back to what I mentioned previously, having the design to align. Everything you do upstage of actually showing up and opening up the analyzer really determines the success that you'll have uh, once you're on site, you know, in situation. Chris, can we talk about microphone placement for main sub alignment? <laughs> well, before we talk about that, uh, what's the assumption of the main and sub configuration? Are the, sure. is the mains flown or the subs stacked? Are they stacked on top of each other? Are the mains flown with the subs? Or Oh, so many questions. Okay, yeah. so the way I thought we would approach this is talk about two of the most common system configurations we see. And for me, I think that would be your left right flown main and your left right stacks of subs and then your left right flown main and your center subs do you agree that that's not the best or or what we want but kind of the two most common things we see out there yeah yeah for sure i mean i run into that all the time in fact uh uh <laughs> there's there's a show that i had to do recently uh where i started off with a a nice you know delay arced center cluster of subs with the flown mains and then and then they started setting up tables in front of the stage and then i got told that i had to move my subs to left right because there's vip seating in front of the stage <laughs> that was interesting um that but was yeah. interesting he says uh, and that was after sound check so the so the engineer shows up and goes what what happened <laughs> and i said I, I don't know man talk to the people up there that paid three thousand dollars a ticket so oh, wow. but first of all there's some there's some some things to just get out of the way, right? Sure. So if you've set your subs up left-right, then you have already made a decision that you don't care about coverage, okay? Mm -hmm. So there's so there's one thing that's... So already you know where you place the microphone is going to determine whether you get subs there or not, or what level of subs you get there. I'm talking about the power alley aspect of subs, uh, left-right subs. If you have subs in the center and you've done nothing to compensate for the buildup in the center of the subwoofer array, uh, depending, and this depends on how long that array is, you could have yourself some other problems, such as an unhappy artist or unhappy people in the front row because the sub, the sub is just nauseatingly loud in that sort of configuration. Also, with a, with a horizontal uh, center cluster, uh, again, and the, the length of that line sort of d determines this, but, you know, do you need sub coverage off center of the stage? You know, do you, are you going wide? Um, because if you are, then that, then that array is not going to do it for you. So there um, are obviously various considerations concerning the sub array itself. So I think maybe we should just scale back a little bit so we can focus on microphone placement. So let's sorry. say that there's yeah. only one sub. Sorry. Yeah. So maybe that would uh, be easier to talk about. Yeah, and this and you're you're sort of getting a window into how I think about this stuff too, because like I want to think about everything before I even open the analyzer and <laughs> sure. like and what you know what are the the considerations that I have to make because ultimately it's just a management of compromises. So um, you know what is the best thing we can get out of this? And so when you talk about a sub on the ground and mains in the air, you've you've uncoupled them, and so you've you've. Think of it as a triangle. So you, if you're standing at front of house, your subs are on the ground, that's one leg. Your mains are in the air, that's the other leg. And then the hypotenuse of the triangle would be the top of the mains to you. Mm -hmm. So where you are, where you stand, changes the relationship. The, the leg from the sub to the main doesn't change. Those are fixed. That's a fixed point. 
but geometrically, you know, imagine how how the hypotenuse changes versus the the floor leg as you walk to or from the stage, and that also changes the relative arrival point of the bottom of the mains versus the top of the sub. So Just remind me, the hypotenuse of the triangle is the longest leg, or that correct. connects the center. Okay, it's right. what connects the two legs. So and that's that's my understanding. So it's like you have the one leg, two leg, and then a hypotenuse that connects the in a right triangle, the side opposite the right angle is called the hypotenuse, and the other two sides of the right triangle are called the legs. What I what I look for with subwoofer alignment is primarily, you know, where where's the person that can do the most damage at, and that's generally the mixed position. Hopefully, it's a good mixed position. If it's not, it's not. You know, these things happen, uh, but get that timing there. And, you know, always time through the crossover, you know, so so I'll, I'll be phase aligned. I, when, I, when I'm talking about subwoofer timing, I'm talking about phase alignment. And so, you know, we may be in time and in phase from the acoustic crossover as well as an octave and a half up and an octave and a half down. So really, no matter where you are in that venue, you're going to be within, you know, 90 degrees of of either of those systems, which is summation, you know, so... Whether you get perfect 6 dB summation at front of house or you get, you know, 4 dB of summation somewhere else or 3 dB somewhere else, you know, no one's going to leave the show going, man, you know, that was pretty good, but, you know, I really could have used 3 dB more at 80 hertz. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm able to work fast, too, is because you take what you can change and know the difference between what you can affect and what you can't. And the only way that you can make that alignment point better is if you couple the subs and the mains. And sometimes it's not the it's not an option to fly the subs with the mains, or ground stacking is not an option, or whatever. So, so it's just um, again management of compromise. From what you said so far, it sounds like the ideal position in the horizontal plane for main sub alignment is at front of house. For for me, if it's a if it's a show. That there's a lot of people at, and there's one guy mixing. That's where I'll put it. If it's if it's a dance, you know, and again, this is subjective too. Like there's uh, depending on the aesthetic you're going for. I mean, if it's um, if it's an EDM thing, I might time the subs to like where the bulk of the audience is going to be, uh, so that they get the biggest buildup, and then the front of house guy isn't you know feeling nauseous. As a rule of thumb. I usually time the subs where the front of house position is because that's what can do the most damage. And then in the vertical plane, are you doing head height, ground plane? Usually about head height. I mean, thinking about the wavelengths that we're looking at for sub timing, uh, you're not going to get into too much trouble um, if you're on the uh, if you're on the ground or in the air. Either way, you know the the wavelengths are pretty long. So, you know, what's a few samples amongst? Uh, you know, 100 cycles, it's really not, not that much of an impact. And ultimately, we're, I'm looking in the phase response for trend. You end up with perfect timing at the crossover frequency, but I'm doing it by having phase alignment throughout the crossover region. So the height of the microphone doesn't really impact those frequencies as much as if you're doing um, a high-frequency broadband system. Chris, tell me about the tools you have in your work bag. What do you take out with you when you go to do uh, a tuning or a show? Sure. Uh, I usually have uh, about a half dozen Y cables, uh, and that's just to split off of various systems. If I need to investigate something, you know, what is the what is the output of this channel actually doing? You know, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Uh, four or five measurement microphones that I carry around, all different types. You know, so. Um, and that's just because you know, if it's raining outside and I have to get get some work done, I'm not going to take out my you know Earthworks S30. I'm going to use my you know Behringer ECM, you know cheaper microphone, that sort of thing. You know, of course, once the show starts, I'm going to put the S30 up at front of house because that's the shiny one that people will recognize. Okay. <laughs> uh, but sure. um, when I'm doing a system tech gig, and some front of house engineer walks up, you know they they don't necessarily know me. I I want to put them at ease as soon as I can, that it's going to be a good day for them. And I'm not going to do that by introducing myself as, you know, product manager and smart instructor guy. You know, that's, that's just, that's corny and, and 
seems sort of boastful. So, you know, I, I just do it in other more subtle ways. You know, I have uh, smart running, you know, and showing data and, and, uh, and I'll have, you know, the earthworks open. So they'll, they'll see like, oh, like obviously this kid cares because he cared enough to buy an earthworks. You know, that's a pretty serious investment for, for someone. So, you know, and then if they ask me questions about anything, I can, I'm, I'm, all, I'm able to explain them and show them data. Back to the tools in my kit. Um, so Y cables, microphones, uh, I carry a PC with me. I carry a PC because there's a lot of stuff out there that is PC only. And, um, and I'm, I don't at all like having parallels or VMware or switching operating systems on my, my Mac. I, I just don't like that workflow. Uh, I much prefer to have a, a separate computer controlling what needs to be controlled in the PC realm. Uh, it's much more stable for me. And, uh, and then that way I don't have to switch you know, views. I can keep Smart open on my Mac and do whatever changes I need to do in my PC. Um, so that's sort of an indispensable tool. Uh, microphone calibrator for, uh, for calibrating for SVL. Uh, and then after that, you know, I usually have a, a, a microphone stand. So Manfrotto is the lighting company. Manfrotto makes these, uh, these stands that are very collapsible. So I have uh, a stand that's called the, the, I believe it's called a micro stand. And it folds down and it, it, it only gets to be about five feet high. Oh, wow. or, but it folds down to about half the size of a of the length of a standard uh, fifteen ten pelican. So I guess you're not using that one to do standing head height. No, no. The, but uh, but I will take averages with that, and it's a great cedar height, and it's a great you know thing to have. That way, you know, I don't have to go source a microphone to make some measurements. Uh, microphone stand, you know. So it's just a uh, keeps. Keeps uh keeps me consistent. Um, and then uh, what else? Uh, I carry a smart I/O, which is just a two-channel interface, and and it just happens to be a smart I/O, but it could be any two-channel interface. And that's just my you know quick and dirty sort of. I need some measurements. I'm gonna plug this thing in, get some stuff quick, and then you know a, a handful of shorter XLR cables and different patch cables, and then. All sorts of adapter cables. Any adapter cable you can imagine or adapter connector. Anything uh, I can imagine? Pretty much. Um, oh. I'm not really exaggerating there. I, I've got a, a bag, and it's it's uh, it's filled with barrels and TRS to XLR and, every, you know, all sorts of RCA to whatever, you know, uh, different, you know. What about, both- like, Phoenix to RJ45? I, I have I have Phoenix to XLR. I do not have Phoenix to RJ45. I don't know what so. that would be for. I'm just testing. I don't it. I don't think that that's a thing. But uh, <laughs> but but I do have Phoenix adapters to both male and female XLR, which then I can adapt the XLR end to a barrel to be whatever I need it to be. So it's all in there, you know. And I've <laughs> I've I've have had situations where people I've I've been the lifesaver because I'm the only guy on the site that has an adapter to get to whatever, to whatever, you know, and, and that's, that's just, you know, part of my kit. That's, I, you know, if you're a system tech, part of your job is to be able to get at stuff, you know, yep. access different points. You know, I've got a handful of, I think I have four cables that are about a foot long and they're just polarity inversion cables. Right. If you don't have enough system processing channels, that might be the only way. Yeah. And that's that, you know, I, I was working on a, on a rig uh, with a company last summer and, and all of the low mid amps were out of polarity from the the mid range amps on their system. So, you know, I just went and I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go right to the amp racks and I changed the analog signal from positive to negative polarity and the system got back the energy at, you know, three hundred cycles or whatever that it was missing and boom, you know, so Did you make those cables? Uh yeah, yeah. Cool. A lot so of the just, stuff I have is made. You yeah. just uh wired some XLR cables out of polarity yeah just you just take one end off and uh and switch it around and put it back on so chris can we go back for a second which microphone calibrator do you have and what is it for uh i use the isemcon sc1 calibrator it's uh it just it gives you a a 1k sine tone at a known reference level and so that level is either 94 db sbl or 110 db sbl and uh and that's used, uh, I'll use that after I'm done tuning a loudspeaker system. You know, after I'm done tuning a system, I'll calibrate a microphone for SPL with that. 
and uh, and then that will be the you know sort of monitoring the show microphone. You know what are the levels and and uh, that microphone will generally be at front of house. You know wherever the mix position is. Nice. And that way, I guess you can. Well, one of the features of Smart we haven't gotten even really into talking about Smart that much, but one of the features of Smart now is that you can continuously log. Um, whatever version flavor of SPL that you want throughout the entire show, right? Yeah, it's really great. Um, and there, you know, there's there's a, an SPL history graph now. There's a bunch of new stuff, some warning indication lights, alarm levels, that sort of stuff. Um, it, just to plug it, uh, the 8.2 update of Smart. Uh, so we're in version eight, and we're in the second major update, so 8.2. It's an SPL, basically an overhaul. And so when we designed eight. We knew that we wanted to have more SPL features. It just wasn't. It just was one of those things that you know we'll get eight out and then we'll we'll revisit this. And so eight dot two is the opportunity to to really uh, blow up those features and, and make a, a smart a really great tool for SPL monitoring as well as uh, real time frequency and impulse response measurements. And tell me about your smart setup. So you've got the smart IO, which now I understand is discontinued, right? So are you going to keep using that one or do you have another multi-channel interface you use? Um, I'll use the smart IO until it doesn't work anymore. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, it's, it's great, you know, it, because it, it integrates with smart so I can control the gain from it. So, I mean, it, for me, I'll just take that IO and I'll show up at a show and I'll put it in the doghouse of a console, whatever my console is. And then I'll close the lid on the doghouse and there's just a USB cable dangling out. And I forget about the IO until I have to pack up. You know, so I like that I can just kind of put it away and it's running in the background. Um, and I don't have to access it because the controls are accessible from the interface of Smart. The other I.O. that I use uh, would be the Roland OctaCapture. And uh, that also has a control panel that I can I can access from. It's the Roland application on Mac or PC. So sort of same idea. You know, I can set up this interface. It doesn't really matter, you know, if I can reach it or not because I'm going to control it from my computer. So Chris, we were talking about the kind of the SPL measuring features that were updated in version 8.2. Um, and I know you talked a lot about this at your recent visit to NAM. So I was mm-hmm. wondering if you could just um, kind of give us an overview of what you learned during research and what you presented um, during your talk there. Sure. Uh, so one of the things that came up that I thought was super interesting was the idea of nuisance monitoring for versus voluntary monitoring. What the distinction would be is is if you've signed up to be in a venue, you know, if you've if you've if you're the performer, if you're the audience, if you're staff, uh, you know, you basically chose to be there, whether or not you chose to because it's your job or you chose to because you like being there, you signed up for it. And so you're a voluntary listener. And so uh, the alternative would be an involuntary listener, right? So nuisance monitoring. You have a house in the neighborhood of a venue, and every Saturday night at you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock when you want to go to bed, you can't because there's this low-frequency rumbling, and it's vibrating your floors and, and thus making it difficult to sleep. Nuisance monitoring is basically low-frequency measurement. For the most part, and and this would be C weight or A weighted SPL measurements. Whereas voluntary monitoring, you know, people that chose to be there, you know, that's A weight measurements. You know, is this causing damage? Is are we getting towards the threshold of pain for people? And so you can, in a lot of ways, monitor the nuisance measurement in the venue and keep that under control, and that will solve problems outside of the venue. It's much harder to to solve problems outside of the venue if you aren't doing anything inside to reduce those problems. And what I mean is, if you know that whenever the, sh- the C-weight or Z-weight measurement in a venue gets to be X level, you know, say 126 dBc, then complaints start calling in. You know, then the cops start getting interested. Okay. So if you can monitor that C-weight in the venue and make sure that you don't go above that threshold of where the neighborhood starts to complain, then you've effectively fixed that problem. You know, so what so, I need to know is at what level the neighbors will complain and then relatively what level that is inside the venue where I'm actually measuring all day long. Right. 
And, and the reason why I say that, because if you look at the, the laws for America, as far as SPL go, there's not really, for the most part, any, uh, I'd say, very strict laws. They're pretty loose. Well, there's definitely no national standard like in other countries, right? Yeah. So the the regulations are basically county, based, you know, city, city, uh, maybe in a shed in a city may have its own regulation only for the surrounding area of that venue, that sort of thing. And looking at different regulations in the states, you know, for example, Los Angeles, the level can't be above 95 dBA weighted at any position that is normally occupied. It's like, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> like, like seriously? Because I mean, if uh, a crowd of people talking is ninety-five dBA, you know, and or louder if they're applauding. Um, in Seattle, there's actually no defined uh, level. It's just uh, from ten p.m. to seven a.m. Any audible sound inside of a residential area would be considered a violation. Oh wow, that's a nuisance. Right, nuisance. And so, how do you, you know? The, you're not going to measure that a weight. You know that's a, that's a c weight. That's a low frequency measure. That's the you know that kind of stuff that's getting out into the neighborhood. That's a um, low frequency that can make it through walls and around yeah, trees. And yeah, down the neighborhood. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, air is a low pass filter. So you know, even even really loud outdoor shows, the the high frequency is going to die off the degree at which the low frequency dies off in comparison is not going to match, you know? So my takeaway too was, was measure a weight and C weight. You know, you should be looking at both in a venue or as you're working. Um, and a weight, not only to get an idea of what you're doing, but also to get a, an idea of where you're going. So, uh, you know, if I start a show off at 98 DBA, 106 DBC or whatever, I don't want to end too far away from there. It's getting louder and louder and louder. Uh, I and this is sort of my philosophical approach to sound as well. Like I, I'm a subtractive mixer. If you can't hear the guitar, it's probably because something else is in the way, not because the guitar needs to be louder necessarily. Um, you know, same thing with the vocal. You know, it's like if you can't hear the vocal, well, hopefully it's loud and it's gain straight gain is appropriate but if you can't hear it maybe there's something else that's in the way of it and turn that down that keeps me at a reasonable level where you know by the end of the show maybe i'm I'm still at 98 106 but the clarity is is pristine because i've spent the show taking out the junk and really focusing on on the art of it not just brute force it needs to be loud so you can hear everything. If I end the show at, at 103A, 110C, then I know that I've, I've crept up quite a bit. And, you know, that is probably not uh, going to sound as good as if I had um, been more careful about the decisions I was making to maintain a consistent level. So, Chris, at what point is this my responsibility? At what point is this something I need to worry about as a sound engineer or a system tech? If I'm on tour, I'm going to play anywhere. Mm-hmm. Do I need to be researching this stuff? Is this another thing I need to prepare for? Or can I just kind of be reactive and wait till maybe a venue manager come and says to me, like, hey, this is a situ- known situation. Here's the number you need to be aware of. Like, how does that work? I've never been in that situation where someone has told me about that limit or that being something yeah. to worry about. You know, you want to be able to, after a complaint, show what was happening, you know, show the data, show that you're within whatever tolerance. Um, and you also want to, before complaints, be logging this, be monitoring this stuff so that you are aware of what you're going at. So, you know, when someone comes up to you at front of house and says, hey, it's too loud, you know, you can be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not pushing it. Re- too loud. Where where are you standing? Oh well, I'm I'm standing right in front of the subwoofer stack. It's like, well, yeah, of course it's too loud for you. Don't stand there. You know, <laughs> there's gonna be a sign somewhere. You know, someone's gonna the local house guy is gonna if there is a law, they're gonna tell you. Um, you know, this is more common in Europe, obviously. You know, there'll be posted uh, posted signage. Uh, as far as in the Amer- in Americas, if you don't have a limit, I I just I. I take it upon myself to just not be a jerk, you know, to just <laughs> okay. be appropriate for the genre, be appropriate for the audience. You know, if, if, if it's a, a, a young crowd and you're 
doing Waka Flocka Flame or something like I did last April, you know, they that crowd wants tons of energy. They want loud. They want big bass. They want it, you know, and, and they're young and, and I'm gonna, I'm okay to give it to them, you know. So that show ended up riding at like 116, oh, 115 yeah. C. Yes. And A way it was about, you know, 98 to 103. Uh, at front of house. So, you know, as you get closer, it's a little bit louder, but, you know, there's 3,000 people there to soak up that energy and, and have a good time. You know, if it were a blues show and there, everyone was in there, you know, and I'm not I'm not saying that blues is a genre for old people, but, you know, that show ran much lower level, you know, just because that crowd doesn't want to hear it, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to make people mad, you know, ultimately. So, Chris, it sounds like maybe... Your suggestion for me would be if I want to be safe, I should just always log. That way, if a complaint com- ever comes in, I can look at the time of the complaint, compare that to my log and the position of that person and where my measurement microphone was, and see if I can draw any information from that. Like, oh, they, yes, I did need, it was too loud at that point, or that didn't have anything to do with me. Yeah. I mean, and the data is easy to get, you know, once you have the gear to set up to do it. So it's, it's you know, the text file, it's not much, it's not much going on there. So I just look at it. I don't see any bad to doing it. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons I can, I can justify monitoring SPL. There's very, I can't think of a reason not to. So Kevin from Facebook says, uh, is he using FIR filters and IIR filters in his live sound tuning? Does he believe there is a future in their applications for an end user system tech? Uh, well, of course I'm using IIR filters. I mean, that's just a uh, digital modeling of an analog parametric filters, as far as I know. So, you know, those are obviously that's, that's an indispensable tool. Uh, as far as FIR filters go, um, in the field, I, you know, that's not that's not something that I'm going to do at a system tuning. You know, especially when time is a constraint. Uh, usually, that involves opening up another program that does the FIR filter coefficient calculation, and then importing that into the system processor that you're using for a system. Um, you know, whether or not you even have a system processor that's capable of loading FIR filters. Um, the processor I use now has a, a filter that's called a phase filter um, that I might play with depending on how how things are going. If, um, you know, if I'm working with different speakers or different manufacturers for, like, example, main and front fill, I might try to tweak, you know, the front fill system to better match the main system if it's not really happy everywhere, but you know, time time was a serious issue in a lot of a lot of these uh, these situations for me. So, yeah, one of the uh, things you mentioned at the beginning was one of the big differences between you being a hero or a zero. Maybe just a matter of time if you get that thing up, set up, and and happy in two hours or fifteen minutes. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I don't want to take time away from someone else. And and ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, the front of house engineer, someone, he's not going to be upset that you know, ten k is is out of phase by thirty degrees from one uh, k. You know, so <laughs> you move on. <laughs> Okay, uh, Kevin had a couple more questions. Has he seen FFT system tuning techniques being accepted by a wider audience of engineers in recent years? Um, I would say accept, accepted isn't necessarily the word. I would say expected. Um, you know, once you get to a certain level, if you're not um, using all the tools you have available, you're sort of just an amateur. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, obviously there's been, uh, years of, of prior experience of people that didn't use, uh, analyzers, but you know, as, as we go, you know, as systems get more capable and more consistent and, you know, you're really just verifying everything's working correctly in a lot of ways. And, and the fastest way to do that is with, with a tool that will help you along the way. As people, you know, aspirational uh, people that want to get to that next level, you know, they look at what are the professionals doing. You know, what are the what are the the top engineers doing? And they're all using they're all using dual channel FFT analyzers. And it's if, interesting that you you mentioned time earlier too, because I think as 
you know, systems get smaller and become easier to set up and people kind of understand them more and how to get to an end result quicker, I think that is one of the reasons it's becoming more accepted or maybe more seen. So you were talking about how you see at the top levels, maybe at a certain level, I think you used the word certain, at a certain level, at a professional level, it's expected. And now I think we're seeing that certain level go to smaller and smaller uh, and lower budget shows because yeah. um, it's it, it's approachable. Now. It's yeah. approachable too. I mean, it's not like you have to buy a thirty thousand dollar measurement rig. I mean, you can field a basic measurement system. You know, if you already have a computer, then it's just the cost of the software and a microphone. You might already have a preamp. I mean, you can get a measurement rig out there pretty cheap. The uh, the expensive part is the time you put into understanding what the heck you're doing. You know, and the training that you might pay for and all that. If you ever look at job postings. For live sound companies, you know, regional companies or whatever, I always see, you know, in the qualifications, you know, um, that you have attended a smart training class or, or have, you know, an experience uh, in dual channel measurement. I mean, I've, I've seen this I in a lot. I have never of, seen that. That is that makes me so happy because until today, Chris, I've always told people this is not going to make you more money. This is for you and you alone, so you can do your job better. But no, maybe I, things I are would, changing now. I would disagree. Yeah, I um, I've seen it many times. Uh, where the you know if, if a company is looking for a system technician, you know that's part of the skill set for a system technician is being able to operate a measurement analyzer. Also, I definitely get paid more. I mean, you know, in my before I was working for Rational Acoustics, um, you know, I I wasn't as hip to measurement as I am now. Um, for you know obvious reasons, <laughs> my ability to make a little bit more money for both rational or myself if I'm freelance has gone up just because of my ability to use an analyzer to get you know good work done fast. Okay, I like it. These are these are good results. Well, let's talk more about this. Um, is he excited about any specific developments in the world of system processing or speaker design that will make system design and system teching easier? Um, well, if you've ever if you ever go to the industry trade shows, uh, you'll Which see. You have. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of manufacturers that are are pushing towards this immersive audio experience, uh, where they? you have more than you know more than left right. Basically, that left right is is passe or whatever you know. So, um, you know, manufacturer systems that that have. Uh, advanced processing algorithms where they'll actually track a performer along a stage and have multiple loudspeaker hangs so you can really localize the the audio source or um, it's it's pretty interesting stuff uh, I don't you know I don't want to name specific manufacturers but if you if you're hip to this you're you're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about um, there's some you know manufacturers are getting more advanced with their tools, their deployment tools. Uh, you know that makes everyone's lives easier, where you don't have to figure out you know what the pickoff points for an array has to be to get the coverage you're looking for, or um, you know you can input into a, a manufacturer's uh, whiz bang magic box how many speakers you're using, and they'll already compensate for you know low frequency buildup or you know things mm -hmm. like these. Another thing that's interesting is. Uh, uh, maybe maybe a triangulation, you know, way of, of having a microphone for the where the coverage should stop, a microphone where the coverage should start, and then a microphone, you know, in a loudspeaker and a system processor provided by the manufacturer. That's a that's able to tailor the coverage for the start and stop points. Um, you know, that's a, another development that I've seen in the last few years. It's really interesting. Oh, cool. And you're not talking about a column array that's then aiming the sound. You're talking about just a single speaker. Uh, I guess you're trying to be yeah. general because there's multiple products. Right. This this okay. particular the one I'm talking about is is a sort of a column principle. It's it's a flat hung, large format PA system, um, and uh, and you know they use our smart API to input the data into their signal processor. And you know, touching on that, that's another thing that's been really interesting to see in the past few years. Uh, the adoption rate of our application programming interfaces into uh, various manufacturers' speaking uh, speaker processors. Hmm where they can acquire measurement data in their own environment, uh, you know, because the assumption is that the person teching the system probably already has smart running. Uh, so it just streamlines their, their process, and that's, that's been really great. Uh, so Jonathan wants to know, basically, what are some new communication features coming out next with smart? He asks about 
um, OSC. He asked about gain tracking and OptiCapture. What can you tell us about Smart and, uh, I guess, APIs? Sure. Well, I can tell you for sure, but by the time this is published, we will have integrated the Roland OctaCapture control into Smart. Oh, what does that mean? Uh, so it basically just means you can control the gain, phantom power, and um, uh, polarity of an input of the OctaCapture within the Smart environment using the built-in input meters in Smart, version oh, okay. 8. Um, it's part of the version 8.3 update, which is in beta currently, but probably by the time this is released, it'll actually be a uh, it'll be available for download. Gain tracking, we we will be adding that as well. It won't be the it won't be at the initial release though. That'll be a a, a rev update, um, and and we look to add other interfaces as well. We just happen to be starting with a Roland because it's a fairly common interface used by a lot of folks in the field they already have them the api we're also we've also updated the api to broadcast uh input meters broadband meters uh as well as spl information um you know as as uh, as more uh, companies are adopting our api want to we want to be able to give them uh as much information as they they may need from our from our interface the benefit of controlling the audio interface from within smart is just a more streamlined workflow. Oh yeah, 100%. Okay. You know, it's just so you don't have to leave the environment. So Rory asked how to measure and read tonality or timbre of loudspeakers. Um, for example, at a crossover frequency, true drivers playing the same tone at the same magnitude and phase sound completely different. Um, so he, he goes on to explain a little bit more, but it's kind of this question of, can we really measure quality between two different speakers and say, this one's good and this one's bad? I think it's, it's, a, it's really a subjective thing. And uh, I'm sure that you and others have worked on the same system and had it sound really, really, really good uh, with one operator and really, really bad with another operator. So. Um, it's really, it's really, it depends. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give a couple examples from a couple other smart instructors. Um, Jim Woods, our Spanish uh, instructor, or Spanish language, he lives in Madrid. He said to me, you know, at one point that a, a good en engineer can make a bad system sound good. And a great engineer can make a good system sound great. <laughs> and an uh, excellent engineer can make a great system sound absolutely transcendent. And, you <laughs> okay. know, so it's, it's really who's driving. You know, another, another one of our instructors, Alexandris uh, Rot Rotmanosis, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. Sorry, Alex, if I pronounce that wrong. Uh, but, you know, he, he's asking me this question recently where a loudspeaker manufacturer uh, developed uh, this speaker system, same components, two different box designs, uh, measured exactly the same, but one of them just sounded so much better, you know, oh. and it's just why you can't measure it, you know, and it's like, well, you know, who knows? I mean, we could, we can, you know, throw darts at the board and say, well, maybe this one has a bigger internal cabinet volume or this one, this, this, the way this one's designed, the cab resonance enhances the low mid better than the other one, I, you know, whatever, there could be you know, various things. Um, it, I guess the, the question is, you know, this is why we have loudspeaker demos, right? Because speakers sure. measure the same, but you got to listen to them. And, and there's other qualities that go into a system that make the purchasing decision that maybe have nothing to do with the audio quality of that system. Sure. Yeah. I guess if every feature of experiencing sound in a room could be captured uh, in, you know, displayed on a graph, then we wouldn't need to have speaker demos. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and does this speaker rig well? You know, how fast does it take to deploy the system? What is the ecosystem of the speaker operating? Does it have uh, the ability to replace uh, components quickly, or you know, is it self-powered and not self-powered? I mean, there's so many other things that go into is a speaker good that may not have to do with its sound quality. It doesn't have a good return on an investment. I know this isn't really helping Rory's answer, but um, <laughs> it's part of it. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of factors that go into... Your emotional connection to that speaker could have yeah. to do with its return oh, on investment and how quickly man, 100%, it, it yeah. deploys. <laughs> sure. Yeah, like, I really like this manufacturer because I really like the people behind this manufacturer. And so I buy their products because I support their people. 
And sure, there might be another speaker manufacturer that has a better sounding box or a better solution for the product I want, but their support isn't as good. You know, so you go with the you go with the people. You know? Russell asks, "What does he always recommend as the absolute minimum you should do? Which steps should you never ever leave out?" Uh, I'm guessing he's well, talking about I'm, your your sort of alignment process. Your flow, yeah. Um, well, I mean, system verification is the first step. I mean, are the outputs going where they should be? And uh, you know, to that point, maybe you just go left left blast some pink noise, right blast some pink noise, and do they sound the same? And one of the the reasons why pink noise is such a darn good uh, stimulation, stimulation source is, or excitation source is because we can listen to it. Um, we can walk the coverage of a speaker playing pink noise and listen to how it's, how it's working, where things are cutting off, where coverage is dropping, uh, you know, the consistency of coverage. Uh, you can't do that with a sweep, you know, you can, or a sign sweep. And with music, you can, but music is dynamic, so it's not sort of, you know, the the sort of steady nature of pink noise gives you the ability to really compare better. Yeah, it should um, be boring. Yeah, so uh, so you know, that's that's my first thing. Do system verification. Do the systems all are they on, and do they sound the same? Does left sound like left? Does right sound like right? You know, after that, you know, depending on how much time you have or your ability to work quickly, this is why my my uh, I have a blank plate on my my drive rack that says Chris Tangeris Smart Ninja. Okay. You know, because a lot of the stuff, you know, if if you're under time constraint or you have to be sort of stealthy about how you're doing things, so you may just get the the left right system sounding the same and at the appropriate level or sensitivity for the production. And then as things are happening, you sort of go in and, and you you get you match up the the frit fills or outfills and do the delay timing uh, maybe by ear or something because you just need to get it sort of sort of close and and um, it's not an installed show so it's going to just have to be rock and roll and make it happen. And I mean if you're if alignment can take as much time as you have so you know, if it's an if it's an installation or a, you know a theater or something like that you know you may take a little bit more time as long as you have it. Chris, where is the best place for people to follow your work online? If you are subscribed to the Rational Newsletter, uh, you are absolutely go- absolutely going to see where I'm teaching and when. There is a smart users Facebook group where it seems like you're fairly active. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a moderator of that group. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll post up stuff on that and make sure that make sure that's running smoothly. That's the uh, smart users. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Sound Design Live. Thanks, man. It was a real pleasure. Sound design. Thanks to the band It Prevails for all the music in this episode. If you want to find more of their music, you can get it over at facebook.com slash itprevails. And that's Chris playing guitar in all those tracks. Now, I know we covered a lot of stuff in today's episode, and if you were driving, you probably didn't have time to take notes. In fact, you probably shouldn't have been taking notes. Um, Don't worry, I took notes for you, and you can get all of them over at sounddesignlive.com. Sound Design Live is supported by Bob and Ellis, and you can start supporting the show today for as little as $1 per episode over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive.com.